TED Audio Collective. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Julia, Joint Flight Service Manager speaking. I was on the plane and the door shut before we took off from Los Angeles. Peter Kalmus used to be a space scientist, and he was on his way to present his research at a big conference when this happened. I had this like really strong feeling that I didn't belong on that plane and I didn't want to be there, and that the update I was giving on my work wasn't worth the carbon emissions, and that in some sense I was stealing from my two children and from other beings on this planet in order to advance my own career a little bit. So it just felt kind of gross to me. It felt wrong. But in this kind of like visceral, kind of like skin creepy crawly sort of way, like I didn't want to be there. That creepy crawly feeling came over Peter and he decided to quit. You know, since then I haven't flown. You heard right. Peter Kalmus gave up airplanes for the good of the planet. But is a big decision like that really practical for the rest of us? And does doing so, like if we all gave up flying, would that really make a difference? This is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work and how people are experimenting with new ways to run their companies, their careers, and their lives. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and most of us, including me, are feeling way anxious about the planet and climate change all the time, and for good reason. You know, am I making the environment worse? Am I just making things that are going to the landfill? If I can reduce my environmental footprint by 10%, but my operating expenses increase by 5%, is that something I should do or not? We're not doing enough to reduce our consumption. We can't even imagine any store fulfilling all our criteria in terms of ethics, Uh, sustainability and taking care of the planet and all that stuff. Yeah, it's really worrying. But here's the thing. When it comes to work, making environmentally friendly choices is particularly hard. Because one of the things a lot of our jobs depend on is, of course, travel. Meeting face-to-face to make presentations, getting to know clients, networking at industry conferences, making a name for yourself. Peter Kalmus thought about all those things that can be so important to do in person. And then he upended his career and his life nonetheless. So my last flight was in 2012. On this episode, the cost of that decision on Peter's professional ambitions, on his research, and on his family vacations. We'll also hear about the hundreds of people who have joined him on his website, noflyclimateside.org after this quick break. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. We're back. I'm Manoush. This is ZigZag. And scientist Peter Kalmus was in hot demand the day that I spoke to him. I was just one of several interviews he was doing that morning. 
the one I just did was a freelancer who's going to write something for the New York Times. Let's see, the first one was for uh, three television stations in um, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, mm-hmm. which they're going to dub me in German, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool, too. I mean, normally I would be annoyed that other journalists were talking to someone I was interviewing. That's my competitive streak. But in this case, I am so glad because this environmental problem that we've got, well, we need to be talking about it all the time. Yeah, so I'm Peter Kalmus, and I am a climate scientist and also a climate activist and also an author. Not only did Peter give up flying because of climate change, he also changed careers. I was working on astrophysics, and then I got so concerned about climate breakdown that I had to switch to climate science. Now Peter studies global warming and how it affects ecosystems like coral reefs. But he's also working as much as he can to motivate people to do any little thing possible to help the climate change issue we have. It does matter, he says. Every single thing I do as a climate activist is geared toward waking up the public. Because the public needs to say, we demand action on this. We demand massive, rapid action. And guess what, policymaker? You're going to lose your job if you don't do it. So it's happening. And that's what gives me hope. And everything I do is geared toward accelerating that shift. So I do a lot of speaking. Well, basically, I guess you could almost say that everything I do is speaking. And everything I do is to make my voice more powerful, including walking the talk. The main reason I do that isn't to keep that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It's to express emergency, to communicate that this is a crisis. Mm. And if I wasn't acting like this was an emergency, I couldn't convincingly communicate that it was an emergency, right? And I genuinely believe that it is. So, Peter, when was the last time you took a flight? So my last flight was in 2012. And it's because I just, from... All the way into my bones, I don't want to be on those planes anymore. Huh. It doesn't feel good to me. And so if I did get on a plane, it would be a kind of sacrifice on my part. Um, I'd have to overcome that sense of uh, maybe disgust almost or distaste. And it would have to be something extremely compelling to get me on the plane. Like I, w- I would have to be very, very convinced that the good I could do with that flight was worth the harm of emitting that CO2. And since 2012, there hasn't been anything that's risen to that bar for me. What kind of invitations have you gotten since 2012 where you would have had to fly? Because presumably as a scientist and an academic, one of the ways that you do advance in your career is presenting research, right? Yeah. Well, there's all kinds of invitations to conferences, um, some of them more serious than others. I was invited to speak at this um, event for youth leaders, actually youth climate leaders, which was in San Juan, Puerto Rico earlier this year. And I said, you know, can I do it remotely? (laughs) Because and I think that would make a really powerful statement to the youth leaders that, you know, this is really an emergency. And they said, nope. So I didn't go to that one. And then more recently, The Economist um, invited me to a like a one day conference or event that they're having in London. And I I said the same thing, you know, and they said, yes, so I'll be doing that remotely. That's so fascinating. I had a similar, um, I'm thinking a lot about the snow flying thing, and I give a lot of talks as well. And I asked some of the people who I work with, like, what do you all think about me doing more of these talks remotely to make a point, right? And they're like, yeah, no, because 
You also talk about the importance of real-life relationships in a digitally connected age, and people want you to be there, to feel the presence of you in the room. You know, there's certainly always going to be um, trade-offs, and I think that technology will take us a long way toward limiting the costs of not being there face-to-face, for example, through virtual reality. I'm, I'm really eager to see genuinely 21st century remote technology come to the fore. But, you know, these kinds of limitations have to be weighed against the fact that we're, we're starting to critically undermine the life support systems on our planet. And there's evidence that past mass extinctions have been very much tied to climate changes in Earth's history. And it takes millions of years for biodiversity to recover after these mass extinctions. So that's sort of what we're looking at. The decisions that we make in the next few years could have implications on this planet for millions of years, which is... uh, Crazy. Boggling. Yeah, it's hard for us even to wrap our minds around that. But once the person really deeply understands at an emotional level the depth of this crisis, how rapid it's occurring, how inescapable it is, it's it's planetary in its breath, how serious it is, how it affects pretty much every part of the foundations of modern global civilization, and how effectively permanent it is on any timescales that we care about, then the decision to fly less or even to stop flying in that context, becomes quite a bit different. So so can I ask you about that? Like, I know that you founded the No-Fly Climate Science. Like, is, is that like a project? Are you trying to beat the drum and say, sign up, do take a pledge, don't fly? Is it going to become something more sort of formalized? And, and how many people are sort of with you on this whole thing? Well, there's hundreds of people on noflyclimatesci.org, I think on the order of 500 people. I don't ask them to take any pledge, but Anyone who is flying less or who has stopped flying is welcome to share their story on the website to kind of make it personal, to put names and faces to the people that are flying less. Because especially a few years ago, it was a pretty lonely place to be, uh, like a a nurse scientist flying (laughs) less or an academic flying less. And our colleagues weren't supportive and they weren't doing it along with us. And so, so yeah, like I think it's still a tiny fraction of academics who are actually trying to fly less. So for me, originally, it was almost like a way to like feel less alone. <laughs> Who else out there is doing this? And what's your experience like? And it feels really uncomfortable to be dangling out on the front lines of cultural shift because you take a lot of flack. You know, there's a lot of pushback. The whole spectrum from trolls to people writing op-eds with like very kind of rational arguments about why we should actually keep on flying and that this movement to fly less is wrongheaded. So you have to deal with all of that, and it can feel exasperating, especially when, like me, I, like I know what an emergency this is, and, and I know eventually more and more people are going to come around to this way of thinking. So what's people's issue with it? Like, what do you think is going on from the people who are trolling you to the people who are yeah. writing well-thought-out rebuttals? Is it denial? Is it yes. fear? What's that about? It is denial, and it's not an on-or-off thing. There's a whole spectrum. Um, there, there's different forms of denial. And it's possible to understand what's happening intellectually, to understand the facts of um, climate breakdown, but to keep that in a little box in your brain and to not let it percolate down to the heart level. (laughs) So to basically not Mm. understand it emotionally. And that's kind of a defense mechanism, I think, to avoid, for example, feeling grief. 
for me at least, grief is this thing that comes in waves like really unexpectedly. It doesn't last that long, like when I feel a wave of grief, but it's super, super intense. I think that's it's scary for some people. And it's scary to, if you do let it in at a deep level and you realize that it's an emergency and you you're standing there emotionally alongside this entire planet full of living beings that's starting to suffer from this and so many species starting to go extinct and um, you know people in the global south whose livelihoods and lives are breaking down and whose futures are looking you know more and more bleak to fully let that in it strongly suggests that you need to confront your own role in this and to make some changes and to maybe start moving away from business as usual and let's face it like today in our our crazy modern world just business as usual just you know doing your job getting your paycheck dropping the kids off putting food on the table it's all like even just doing that is hard right yeah so it's understandable that people would want to hold this off at arm's length from like completely disregarding the science and saying like none of this is happening that's like very a very hard form of denial but all the way to saying like yeah this is happening the science is true but we should keep flying for whatever reason. That's all kind of lying to me on on a spectrum of denial because I just can't imagine flying right now. (laughs) Can I ask you a question? Like I've been thinking about this a lot and here's where I struggle. Like not flying for work, I think I'd be okay with that. But I have two kids, you have two kids. And like for me, part of them growing into adults who have an appreciation for the diversity of culture and worlds and people is experiencing different cultures and going to visit other countries and travel and becoming sophisticated global citizens. How do you manage not giving that to your children? Well, um, you know... I sound judgy. I'm sorry yeah, about that. Well, I'm not saying to not travel. <laughs> I'm just saying we have to find ways to travel without emitting all the carbon, which unfortunately means not flying and slower travel. So we've traveled to Canada, which doesn't really necessarily count as a massive <laughs> different culture. We could certainly go to Mexico, which we just haven't gotten around to. And it's possible to travel in other ways um, without planes, but it's going to take a renormalizing of how we view travel and energy in the context of catastrophic climate breakdown. So when I was younger, I'll admit that I, you know, flew off to Paris for a weekend with a girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. And came back and it wasn't satisfying. It was exhausting. (laughs) I did get sick. It was actually food poisoning. So it was probably just a random thing, but (laughs) it felt hectic. It certainly didn't feel like a transfer of cultures or in any, in any way. On the other hand, you know, uh, when I was younger too, I spent six months in India uh, learning uh, Indian music. A longer trip like that, which really did have like a serious impact on me as sort of a global citizen and was like a really significant cultural experience for me. It would have made sense to possibly get there going over the ocean and taking trains and and doing slow travel. And it, it could have made that trip even that much more meaningful. I mean, this planet is 70% ocean and very few of us ever get out onto the deep ocean, which is, it's an amazing way to experience this planet. It's sort of sad that so few of us get to experience it that way. And as non-airplane travel starts to become more available and more affordable, 
then the norms will change along with it. And it's this sort of chicken and egg problem, right? But I'm certainly not <laughs> advocating for not traveling. So if somebody's listening and they're like, okay, so what should I do? What is one thing they can do right now? And maybe they're thinking, you know what? I am going to stop flying. But maybe it's something they want to start smaller. Yeah. What can they do? Well, it, it took me two years to ramp down my flying. So it was a struggle of my own renormalizing and changing expectations of my parents and you know my sisters and my employers. So be gentle with yourself and let that unfold in time, even it's hard to say that kind of knowing how quickly we need to act. But I would say that the one thing that any listener can do really doesn't directly have to do with carbon emissions at all. It's to use your voice and to demand for rapid change, starting with just talking a lot, talking with the water cooler at the supermarket checkout line to your parents on the phone, to your coworkers, to friends and strangers and the person coming to read the water meter, the gas meter, whatever it is, just I find all these kinds of uh, ways to interject climate into conversations and join Extinction Rebellion or you join Fridays for Future and start climate striking or you join the Sunrise Movement or whatever it is. There's, there's many, many different groups you can join, but then you're adding your voice to theirs and our voices are stronger when they're unified like that. And then you get up to speed, you become informed much more quickly, and your impact gets magnified. Not to mention the fact that it's sort of like almost like group therapy because you'll be with people <laughs> who, who get what a serious problem this is. And another way to use your voice is, is to actually reduce your carbon emissions and stop using so much fossil fuel and fly less and eat less meat and um, be really kind of flamboyant about that. You know, don't hide it from people. Be like, yeah, I, you know, I, I'd really rather not take that flight if there's any way to avoid it. I don't want to come give that speech or is there some way we can combine these two business trips because of the carbon emissions? If you're actually starting to walk the walk, it's extremely liberating. You, you're free to really put your emotion into it and say like, yeah, this is something that's an emergency and this is something that terrifies me. And then of course, getting political, that's a form of using your voice too. Certainly voting, but going far, far beyond voting, calling representatives, you know, supporting campaigns for people who are going to take climate breakdown very seriously, maybe even running for office yourself. And then finally, get creative. Like every single one of your listeners has their own unique experience, their own skills and talents and resources and networks, different things that they do for a living um, that could possibly contribute to raising this public sense of urgency, which is the thing that we need to unlock rapid collective action. My last question for you. So I was at a conference, a tech and business conference, and there was the CEO of a major airline on stage. And I thought to myself, I'll know this situation with climate change has changed when the CEO of a major airline tells people to stop flying as much. I don't know how long that will take, but we might get there. What do you need to see? What's going to be the one moment that you want to see that you know that will have made real progress? <laughs> well, um, as a scientist, it's going to be when global emissions stops climbing and starts going down. And if it does that for like three or four years in a, in a row, then I'll know things are really starting to click. You know, I have this uh, this kind of subjective sense that we've passed a, a social inflection point, which I'm super, super excited about. Doing climate science, doing climate activism, being taken seriously now for the first time in 
basically forever. It feels wonderful and it feels completely different. But all of those molecules and photons and the Earth system itself, it doesn't care how I feel and it doesn't care about the conversations we're having. Right. It only cares about how much, how rapidly we're emitting greenhouse gases and how, how much they're accumulating in the atmosphere. So that's the next real step is um, turning that corner. And instead of going up over 2% per year to start actually going down year by year. Peter Kalmus, thank you so much for really, I found this very inspiring. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Okay, in a minute, just how many flights the average American takes and if they should feel guilty about their flying. I'll be back with my co-founder, Jen Poyant. That's in a minute. Okay, we're back. This is ZigZag. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and I'm joined for our, our analysis portion of the show by my co-founder, Jen Poyant. But today, Jen, you're not sitting next to me for this part. Mm-hmm. I'm at home. You're at home. Poor boo-boo I'm is sick. sick. Boo-boo. Oh, boo-boo. So, and I was paranoid. I was like, keep your germs and rock away, I don't blame girl. you. It seems to really be going around. So my audio is going to sound, you're going to hear planes. And potentially construction right, you're near noise, the airport. and it's going to be a little echoey. So sorry about the audio quality, but I don't want to get Manoush sick. No, I think the listeners like the flavor that you're bringing in. Meanwhile, though, let me just say, we have so many apps making it possible for us to see each other and talk to each other. Jenna, it's kind of like it you is. are here, but without the germs. All right, so speaking of hearing planes, what do you think of Peter Kalmus? Re- that's a really nice segue. I'm just going to say that was Well, thanks. <laughs> impressive. <laughs> What do you think? Like, do you think he's nuts or do you think he's amazing or do you think he's like the sweetest? Like when he talks about the emotional mm, the grief reckoning that people. Yeah. Yes, the grief about yeah, climate change. Yeah, I noticed change. that. He said that he goes through periods of grief when he thinks about this. And I think that's really touching. And I I think if we allowed ourselves to think about this stuff, we would do that too. I think a lot of people don't allow themselves to really think about it and make personal change. Really? You don't think so? Because like, well, I was going to say that I did another interview with um, a woman who's researching people who are deciding not to have kids because of climate change. And so it seems to me like there are some people who are really deciding to make very drastic changes to their lives. But maybe you're right. Maybe it is, you know, they're the 0.111 or 0111, you know what I'm saying, percentage of the population who really... take it to heart like I that. wanted to ask, like, start this conversation, and I know you're going to lead me in other places, too, with, with just, like, what are we doing as individuals? Because I've made, I think, relatively big changes in my life in the last six months, and I, I wonder if other people are, too, and it's just really starting to hit people, and so they're trying, at least. Well, I think for this conversation, let's focus on flying. So there was an excellent New York Times article called How Guilty Should You Feel About mm-hmm. Flying? And they actually were qu- quoting um, a new report from the Council on Clean Transportation. And so, OK, this is really interesting to me. The U.S. alone makes up a quarter of global aviation emissions, more than any other country. Mm-hmm. And this is where I really... This hurts. The 12% of Americans who make more than six round-trip flights a year, 
So 12% of Americans, six round-trip flights a year, they are responsible for two-thirds of all air travel and therefore two-thirds of air travel emissions. Mm. But, and this was actually kind of heartening, half of Americans typically don't fly at all. So that means that most Americans should actually be more concerned with emissions from their car or their heating or air conditioning than really anything else, because cars, of course, are still the largest source of CO2 emissions. So I think I read in a different New York Times article, and I'll double check this fact for you, but right now only 2.5% of carbon emissions globally come from air travel. But by 2050, it's supposed to go up to a quarter of the world's carbon budget, quote-unquote carbon budget. So it's interesting because I was thinking about that, like the guilt question, that's still a small amount compared to all the other ways that we emit carbon. So I don't know if I feel that guilty about it if it's only 2.5%. Okay, so here is what the International Council on Clean Transportation says. See if you agree with this, Jen. If you are an American who flies a couple of times a year, you probably shouldn't worry too much about boarding a plane. Instead, you should focus your efforts on finding fuel-efficient carriers. I don't know who those are. Do you know who those are? No. Okay. Uh, That could make a big dent in your carbon emissions. And then if you are a frequent flyer, and that's been me, Mm -hmm. who full disclosure, and but I care about climate change, then you should think more carefully about how many of those trips are truly necessary, mm. particularly if you fly in more in carbon-intensive business class, guilty as charged. Because when I go to give a talk, I have the privilege of flying business Wait, class. Wait, why is which makes business a, class more carbon-intensive? Because you take more space up on the plane. Oh. So there's less people to share huh, the burden with. That. Yippers. But I got to say, like, there are times when I'm, like, flying six hours, get off the plane, walk onto a stage, Mm -hmm. go do a book signing, and then go get back on a plane. And I am destroyed. And being able to lie down makes a humongous difference. Mm -hmm. But maybe I shouldn't be going in the first place Mm -hmm. is what I'm wondering. Mm I'm going to really try to rethink this. I'm really – I – it's too much. Uh, This past year, I flew a ton. It wreaked havoc on my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I, I really, I want to try to make a change. I want to try. I want to try to ask places that who invite me to talk to if I can do talks remotely. Like, you know, like right now, you and I, you didn't get in your car to drive here and we saved all kinds of emissions, right? Yeah. Although you do take public transportation a lot. Well, that and I recently switched to a hybrid car. Well done. For this exact reason. How do you feel about your flying? Do you feel it guilty about it or do you feel like you're sort of choosing wisely? Well, so mine's a little different. I do travel for business travel, but not that much. But I did go to a conference, what, last week in Chicago, flew there for that. And it was worth it, I think, in the context of all of the uh, professional connections that I made and renewed because I work from home in Rockaway and like kind of hole away up here. It's, It's a little dangerous sometimes professionally. But then the rest of my travel is like Family, which I can't avoid because my my family lives in Texas. Um, I go to see them with my son. But it's not like you go once a month. We go twice a year, basically, right? So, but that's four tickets, you know? Right. But then the other travel that I was doing a lot of last year was travel for surfing. And that maybe, Mm. uh, maybe I need to rethink that a little bit. I don't know. I don't know how to, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I got invited to another conference in South Africa. And I was like, 
I just can't do it for my mental health and because, like, going to South Africa for two days is just crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's like that India trip that I got invited to do for a panel. I'm glad I didn't do that one. For a panel. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So I guess I want to start asking myself the question, is this flight necessary or is it a luxury? I mean, I don't think I can go full Peter Kalmus and quit flying because— I still do want my kids to see the world, but, like, maybe we shouldn't just pop over to London for a weekend, which is such a privilege to be able to do. But, I mean, it's just, like, can't do that. I used to do that. I was going to say, when, did, boyf- when are you popping over to London for a weekend with your family? You know, I, li- I worked for the BBC. I used to pop over all kinds <laughs> of places. That was my life. But now we just—I can't do—I mean, well, first of all, I do have a family, so I can't do that. But that was—yeah, I was a person who popped over to places. It's kind of gross now that I think about it. No, it was a di- whatever. I'm not going to judge my past. It's fine. Self. It's fine. I mean, that was a, it was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time. I think the tours and things the hard one, honestly. That's hard. And him being like, "Well, you have to think about just going to places maybe where you don't fly or like doing it less or whatever." Canada. Yeah, like Canada, Mexico. It's like, "Okay, but even from New York, that's like what are we doing? Like taking a train to Texas and then crossing the border over a bus or something? Like it's, it's tricky." I would like to see a study where they compare emissions a, a long car trip compared to a f- short flight compared to— I know. It's so complicated, though. It's like, is it a hybrid car or not or electric car right. or not? And I don't know. I was, I was thinking about Greta Thunberg and her decision, you know, which was an activist decision, obviously, to vote— to the climate conference this past fall, making a statement about essentially not flying as well, like encouraging people. But she encourages people to fly less, not stop flying. Right. It's a pretty, his right. approach is pretty extreme. And I mean, that's what he's doing. He's trying to make a statement with it. I'm going to start talking about it more too. I know you want to keep it just a flying, but he doesn't. He even says like, if you stopped eating meat, like make that a big point in your life. And like, that's, right. which I have, I've cut down my meat consumption, I would say, by like 90% in the past six months. We made a point of asking people to share their changes that they've made to their business regarding the environment. Mm -hmm. And I have to say the ones that we heard back from were obviously significant, like places that are no longer using paper. I think that's awesome. Other people who are doing much less commuting, they're working from home, Mm -hmm. But we still haven't heard back from someone who was like, I upended my business. I made a huge change because of this. So I'm wondering if maybe we're not there yet. Or maybe the vast reach of this podcast has not (laughs) penetrated certain corners of America where they're extremely thoughtful about climate change. Can I just do a little programming note here? Mm -hmm. There's no zigzag episode next week. But after that, we've got three episodes back-to-back, and these are, I think, three of the strongest episodes that we've ever got going. So one of them comes out on Thanksgiving, and that's on purpose because we are hoping that you will listen to it. It's a conversation. Should I tell them or keep it a surprise? Yes. No, tell them. I love this. I love this interview. It's It's pretty fun, right? It makes me really happy. So it's with Valerie Jarrett, yes, the Obama's advisor for eight years in the White House. I encourage people to embrace the zigzag. That's where the adventure is. If I hadn't zigged and zagged, you would not invite me here. (laughs) Believe me. I had no idea how unbelievable her family was 
one of her relatives was, I think it's her great-grandfather, was the first black person to ever attend MIT in 1888. Incredible family history, plus her own vulnerability as to the mistakes that she made in her careers. Her family refers to zigzags as swerves. And, and she just also is, like, putting her money where her mouth is. Like, the way that they handled maternity and paternity leave at the White House was fascinating. Yeah. It's such a good interview. You guys have to listen to it. It's so good. And it's, it's perfect for Thanksgiving, for just taking some time and hearing a very wise and funny woman talk about her, her life story. It's, it's really good. Please listen to our Thanksgiving episode. Plus, there'll be two more episodes after that. We are coming to the end of 2019. And in our very last episode, coming out December 12th, we will share all kinds of news with you about where this show is going. For now, though, if you would like to tell us about your environmental habits, how they're changing the way you work, how they've changed maybe your professional ambitions, how they've changed what you do with your family, we'd still love to hear these stories because I think it's super important. We want to come keep going and researching this topic. So please record a voice memo or just email us at zigzag at stable G. That is zigzag at stable G dot com. And in the newsletter, I will link to all the things that Jen and I talked about on this episode, that research that came, that we talked about, the New York Times article, also Peter Kalmus's No Fly website, all those things. We'll put them in the newsletter that is coming out next week when we don't have an episode coming out. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant with help from Marcy Thompson. Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartell is our production coordinator. And many thanks to Anya Zhezik for her audio engineering as well. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We're proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Okay, so should we just go? Maybe we should clap at the same time so they can sync them easily. Yeah, I'll snap. You clap. Okay, three, two, one. Okay. (laughs) Such (laughs) dorks. Super high tech. (laughs) Um, Okay. Um, All right.